Thank you for tuning in to The Way Podcast, a work of Scattered Abroad which is overseen by the East Hill Church of Christ in Pulaski, Tennessee. You can find our website at scatteredabroad.org. In this podcast, we seek to showcase the way that God wants us to live by looking at what is written in His Word. The Bible says God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is That Way. Here is your host, Houston Welch. Welcome back to The Way Podcast. I'm your host, Houston Welch, and we are furthering our discussion uh, looking at Jesus throughout the Old Testament. And now some of these might seem a little bit bold uh, to to at least conclude that they are in fact Jesus, that each of these occurrences and these instances where we see uh, the individual uh, or an individual, uh, God manifested in the flesh prior to Jesus being uh, God incarnate, uh, that being that he was born of a woman uh, and that he was God also in the flesh. But there are many instances where we read about God interacting with man um, being uh, manifested, um, anthropomorphized, that he is in the flesh, so to speak. Now, of course, that's a, we could d- continue a discussion entirely of, of just that as to what ig- nature exactly uh, God took whenever he visited man in times past, but uh, frankly, I don't believe that we will ever be able to conclude that one. However, what person is it that is visiting man? What person of the Godhead is visiting man? Is it Jesus who did, in fact, uh, who was incarnate, God incarnate, who was born of woman? Was it him? Was it the second person of the Godhead? We know that according to John, and we keep reiterating this, restating that no man has seen the Father at any time. The Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So the only being that has seen, or the only uh, man, so to speak, that has seen the Father at any point in time was Jesus. The only reason why Jesus has seen the Father, I believe, is because he was, in fact, God. Him and the Father are one in the same. They are uh, unity, perfect unity, uh, one being in two persons. But, so, whenever we look throughout, it might seem a little bit bold to conclude that, well, each of these instances, based on just that text, is uh, Jesus, or the second person of the Godhead, But in Isaiah chapter 6, we have confirmation from John speaking about that passage. So we're going to read John, uh, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 6 first. Isaiah Isaiah chapter 6 and the first uh, few verses. In the year that King Isaiah died, uh, Isaiah saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his uh, feet. And with two he did fly. Verse 3. One cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door 
moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew uh, over unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Now, that's the base text that I want us to, to be discussing, but in order for us to look at John's confirmation that this was, in fact, Jesus, we need to go down to verse 10, beginning of verse 9, rather. Uh, so after... Uh, Isaiah had been cleansed. Then God asked the question, Who shall I send? Isaiah volunteers himself, Here am I, send me. Verse 9, he said, God said, Go and tell this people, You hear indeed, but do not understand. You see indeed, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. So John's confirmation uh, that this is speaking about Jesus is in John chapter 12, uh, beginning of verse uh, 40. Um, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spake of him. Now, Isaiah gave, uh, heard God, and God was speaking twofold in a twofold manner, a twofold prophecy, so to speak. Yes, he was speaking about the people during Isaiah's time. They were not much unlike uh, the people during Jesus' time. The people of Jesus' time was not much unlike the people of Isaiah's time. They did not want to listen to the word of God, and we can say that it's not much like uh, those of our time as, as well. People did not want to hear and do not want to hear the word of God. Now, John says, Isaiah said these things whenever he saw his glory and spake of him. Now, he's not talking about the Father in the context. Whenever he saw his glory, he saw Jesus' glory. And whenever he spake of him, he prophesied of Jesus. He looked forward to Jesus. So there is, I believe, a little bit of foreshadowing, um, not necessarily or not exactly prophecy, per se, uh, in Isaiah chapter 6. But that individual, that being that Isaiah saw high and lifted up on the throne, was, in fact, Jesus. Not only do we know it, it's him because no man has seen the Father at any time, yet Isaiah says, I have seen the Lord. He didn't say I've seen the Father, but I've seen the Lord. And John confirms it for us as well. Now, there's something to, to add to that. In building upon everything that we have said uh, in the past few discussions, the past few uh, weeks, that you can 
only see, that mankind can only see the Father through Jesus. The Father is not visible to man, to humanity. We cannot see him. In fact, I would say that it is hard, or if, if not near impossible, for us to even comprehend him. And yet, through Jesus, and only through Jesus, can we see him. This is what John means by, by saying, the Son who was in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Not only were through Jesus' words and through his teaching, but also through his life, that he is the manifestation of the Father, of the Creator. And so it is only through him that we can get a glimpse into the Father or at the Father. So one commentator stated, and continuing this discussion going forward, one commentator stated that Isaiah, uh, he, he made a note of it to say that Isaiah was not in a dream, he wasn't uh, asleep, but rather he was in a trance-like state like many of the prophets received their revelations, and not, uh, not unlike what we read about in Revelation. John says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That is very similar. In fact, I would say one and the same as to what we're reading about Isaiah right now, is that while his physical body uh, still was present on the earth, he was carried up into the realm of God to see him, to see God. Now, I want us to, to, try, to try to paint a picture or try to get in our minds what Isaiah uh, tried to convey to us and what he saw. Uh, so, first, he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. We've already established that this is Jesus. And whatever imagery we have of Jesus in our minds, I don't think it's it's relevant. No man can know exactly what Jesus uh, looked like. You might say, well, somebody uh, found uh, the the uh, pieces of clothing that they put on his face, and then we can see the impressions. And that, well, frankly, that just seems a little too far fetched uh, for me to believe. We don't know what Jesus looked like. So whatever image we have in our mind, I don't think that it's going to be accurate of him. But we know that this is Jesus sitting upon the throne. He's high and lifted up. So going forward a little bit, a little ways, Isaiah is standing in the temple. As it says, his train filled the temple. The king, the Lord's train, his skirt, filled the temple, the skirt of his robe, filled the entire temple. It was filled up. That's what the word literally means. So there was not a place in the temple that was not filled by the skirt or by the train of Jesus' robe. Above it stood the seraphim. These creatures... Uh, while not being a, uh, a, a student of angels, I don't know exactly everything there is to know about angels. 
However, this is the only time that the seraphim are mentioned throughout Scripture, the entirety of Scripture. The cherubim are mentioned a few times, but the seraphim are only mentioned here. Now, a similar word is used also in Numbers whenever describing the fiery serpents. And it's almost identical to this word here. So, I don't know if that is what the seraphim look like, as if they are fiery serpents with, uh, with wings. I don't exactly know. However, I do know that they had wings, that they had faces, and that they in fact had feet. Two of their wings, they covered their face, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. Two of their wings, they covered their feet, and with the last two wings, they flew. Not only that, whenever uh, they were in the presence of God, they sang back and forth to one another. They cried unto one another. This, they're singing to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is in an antiphony style. This is singing back and forth. Uh, we have songs like this that we sing. Of course, none are coming to the top of my head at the moment. Um, but it's just, it's almost answering back and forth one to another. So one seraphim would would cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then another seraphim would answer or would respond, the whole earth is full of his glory. And then they would just keep going back and forth in this harmonious, uh, um, th this melody that they had praising God, praising Jesus. Then Isaiah says, the post of the doors moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. So two things happened whenever the angels sang. The post of the door moved, so the entryway, it shook, it rattled, it rumbled. And this is perhaps probably where Isaiah is standing, looking into the temple. Everything, he could not walk much further because he would be standing on the Lord's train. This is perhaps one of the reasons why the seraphim flew, so as to not be standing on the Lord's train. And we'll get into that a little bit more here in, here in a moment. And the, the other thing that happened whenever they sang was that the whole temple, that the whole house was filled with smoke. Now, there are uh, three fools, so to speak, in this, in this account. The first one being his train or his skirts of the robe. They filled the temple completely to the brim. Not a place that you could step in the temple uh, would be without without God's train. So this might be overreaching. So it's not it's not gospel. We don't have any place in Scripture that that we can affirm or 
that I would say either deny what is what what I'm about to say. I believe the train here, and I, I think that there's something to it because there there are three fields here, and I believe the train represents God's truth or God's word. The reason I say this is because it's been stated that the kings of uh, this era, during Isaiah's era, and even through all the way back to, to David and Saul's era, uh, there's one occasion where David, uh, while Saul was sleeping in his camp, this is while Saul also was, was uh, chasing David around trying to kill him, and uh, Saul was, of course, resting, sleeping at night, and David snuck into the camp, snuck into his tent, and he cut off the train of his robe, the skirt of his robe. This it was a common practice for kings during that time and during Isaiah's time that they, whenever they defeated a king, they would cut off the robe and they would sew it onto their own. And so the more uh, kings they conquered or defeated, the larger or the more full their robe or their train would get. Building upon that, it is a sign of strength as a king. This is the sovereign ruler that we're talking about. This is the Lord of hosts. This is the Lord of all. What is God's strength? There are three passages that we can look at. Romans chapter 1. Verse 16, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, both of those, as well as a, a passage in Hebrews. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power or the strength of God unto salvation. Same thing reiterated in 1 Corinthians as well as Hebrews, that the power of God or the strength of God is the gospel or his message, or his word. So, the first, uh, his, his train filled the temple, that being God's truth. And again, this is not, I cannot preach this as gospel. But it just seems, uh, seems to be a little bit more there. Then, the second that we read about is his glory. The whole earth uh, shall be filled with his glory or the whole earth is full of his glory. Now there are two passages that I want to mention, Numbers chapter 14 and verse 22. Numbers 14 verse 22, uh, because all those men which have seen my glory, my miracles which I did in uh, the wilderness and in, the, uh, in Egypt and in the wilderness have tempted me now, those ten times, and have not hearkened my voice. And then he goes on later to say that uh, his, uh, verse 21 rather, backing up, as truly as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So he's talking future tense, Numbers 14, verse 21, looking into the future, looking ahead, that all the earth will be filled with the glory of God. And Psalm uh, chapter 72 and verse 19 is basically an exact uh, reiteration of that very same statement that all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. 
looking forward to something. So perhaps what the seraphim are saying, all the earth uh, is filled with the glory of the Lord. It's looking toward Jesus. Whenever Jesus prayed to the Father on one occasion, this was the night um, that he was to be betrayed, uh, the, the night before his crucifixion, and he prayed to God that, all, that, uh, that God would glorify himself, and God responded to Jesus saying, I have both glorified myself and will glorify so perhaps this is what the seraphim are looking at, looking forward to, all the earth being filled with God's glory. And now here, the third feel. After they sang this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, all the earth is filled with his glory. The doors of the post, uh, the post of the door shook. And the entire temple was filled with smoke. Now, the seraphim had wings covering their face. The only reason I could see that this would be necessary was that they are created beings that could not view or witness the glory of God. They could not see God. And this is this goes right along with, with Isaiah. Now, yes, they are angels. However, they are still created beings. Do they have sin? Doubtful if they are, in fact, in the presence of God and they're singing praises, but it still kind of goes along with that notion that no uh, man can see the Father, perhaps no being can see God in his fullness. Or perhaps it's just symbolic. But whenever Isaiah saw, and he, he finally, after witnessing all of the beauty and, and understanding and grasping where he was, he finally realized, and once God was no longer in his view, he realized, I am undone. I have seen God, and I'm a man of unclean lips. I, I, I have iniquity. I have sin. Perhaps the feeling of the smoke was to bring Isaiah, for one, back down to reality. But did it symbolize anything? Was it representative of anything? Well, I would go on to say that uh, that they seeing um, that they don't see they they uh, uh, they see indeed, but they do not perceive. Um, they they their ears. Uh, God told Isaiah to make their ears heavy and to shut their eyes, lest. They see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert. Perhaps because Isaiah did in fact have this sin that he could no longer see God after witnessing him. Now, there are a few things to discuss here. 
the consequences of seeing God. I want us to stay in Isaiah, looking at Isaiah 52, and that passage where uh, God says to the children of Israel, um, your iniquity have separated uh, you from your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear you. We oftentimes view that as, while yes, and this still holds true, that we cannot see God because of our sin. However, let's look at it and build upon that. Look at it from a different angle, from almost the same angle, but build upon it just slightly. Viewing it from Isaiah's perspective, that once he saw God, then the revelation and the realization of his trespasses, his deep iniquity, his sins, all came to the forefront of his mind. And perhaps it is that we cannot be in the presence of God, that we cannot look upon God, because frankly, whenever we do, we realize what great iniquities we're holding, what great sins that we bear, and that viewing God brings forth our shame of falling short of what he is and that it's not on God. It's not God's fault that we cannot view him, but rather it's ours. It's our own shame that uh, that, that prevents us from being able to come to him and to be in his presence. And then whenever that shame and think about back to Genesis, in the very beginning, whenever God, yes, he communed with them on a daily basis prior to the fall, prior to taking of the knowledge of the, of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And then once they took of that fruit, God went looking for them, but they hid themselves because of their own shame. And perhaps that is exactly what it is for us, is that we hide ourselves from God, not that God hides himself from us or that there's some miraculous division or separation, but simply it is our shame that separates us from God. And whenever we see him, that is when shame comes in its fullness and in its entirety. But notice what Jesus does for Isaiah. He sends the angel and he gives him something that removes his iniquity from him makes him clean. And that is exactly what Jesus does for us. Our shame of sin separates us from him. And by ourselves, there's nothing that we can do to be reconciled back to him. There's nothing that we can do to bring ourselves back in the presence of God. But just like in the garden... He looks for us, he seeks us out, and he provides a way of salvation for us.
If you have any questions or uh, just want to reach out or in any way you, you want, whatever it is, you can reach out to us. Our information is all in the, the description down below. There are links down there. And you can find us on almost every social media platform. If you, uh, if you found us through Facebook, be sure to like and share. And if you think that this would help somebody, uh, please uh, share it with them. Uh, let them listen to it and recommend it to them. Uh, go check out some of our sistering podcasts. If you believe that this helped you, I'm sure that uh, many of our other part podcasts will be uh, very beneficial to you as well. We do appreciate you, and as always, we love you very much, and have a good day.